Welcome to 2D Pokies Under the Influence. I'm Pete B, and my co-host is Robbie D. Oh boy, Robbie, we got close on that last one. That <laughs> a little too close for comfort down in Durham for me. That was that was close. Very frightening, but we pulled it out. So we can rest easy for another week until next Saturday. Well, I'm just glad we get to finally play a game at home on a Saturday on a full week's rest. That hasn't happened since the ECU game. It really has been a pretty tough stretch that they just went through between the Thursday night games, the short week, on the road. That's not an easy easy stretch to get through and probably something that I wasn't really, once we got into the season, I completely forgot how hard that stretch was going to be and they played well. It really was a difficult stretch. Why don't you give us a cheers to celebrate? I think our cheers is to exercising some of our demons this season. And we just got Duke back for a couple losses that we've taken against them. We did not do it in the Carrier Dome, but we did exercise uh, the the demons with regard to going up to, to Pitt and playing in that hellhole. So... I think there's a lot of things different about this team this year that they, they they recognize and they're talking about the things that have happened in the past. But they, I think the attitude is, yeah, that was a Virginia Tech team, but it wasn't this Virginia Tech team. So hat tip to the seniors, to the coaches, to everybody on the team to you know acknowledge things, but then move past and really just kind of you know play the game that's in front of you and play the best you can every week and find a way to pull it out. Cheers. And just to finish off that thought on that stretch, it was at North Carolina, at Syracuse, Miami on five days rest, at Pitt, at Duke. So four to five games on the road, and the one home game was on a short week to prepare for a tough Miami team. A banged up, but still nevertheless tough Miami team. And to only come out of that stretch with one loss, including that win at Pitt and at Duke, like you just said, that is impressive. And now we get to stay at home this weekend against Georgia Tech. And we'll we'll talk about them in a minute, but we got to recap this Duke game first. It started off, again, slower than we really wanted. It was 0-0 for seven minutes in this game, and we finally took a 7-0 lead on a run to Trayvon McMillan. And on that drive, there was a really nice catch by Bucky that he had to like turn around and Bobble caught it. Uh, but we got the 7-0 lead, but unfortunately, we let Duke come right down the field and score a TD on a bunch of runs to their uh, fill-in running back, Sean Wilson, because as we mentioned in our last podcast, Jayla Duncan was out, but they weren't showing many ill effects of missing Duncan in this one. Yeah, I thought they came out, and Cutcliffe just, he does so well with what he has. There were so many injuries and things that have happened to them this year, but he knows how to scheme, and he knows how to put together really nice offensive schemes, take what the defense is giving them, play to some of the weaknesses in what he sees in the defensive scheme. And, you know, on the other side of the ball as well, he, he knows how to contain what I think is a pretty good Virginia Tech offense. And they did it really well. They they really did coach him up in this game because after they tied it up, you know, we come back down the field and we attempt a 34-yard field goal and Sly misses, which is really annoying after he went 6-for-6 six six last week at Pitt. I guess he deserves a miss here and there, but from 34 yards, he's been so automatic, you'd figure that would go through. So Duke is moving the ball at will after we miss that field goal, and we get them to a fourth down, and they decide to attempt their own field goal, which was the best decision that could have happened to Tech because it was, I think it was a fourth and three, and if they had gone for it, I'm almost positive they would have gotten it. But instead, we block the field goal. Greg Stroman gets in, unblocked. Puts it on the ground. Adonis scoop and score to the house. 14-7, to we take the lead. And that was a huge momentum swing in this game. And without it, I don't think there's a chance we would have won. There's no chance that we would have won. And you said that they were moving the ball at will. That's not an exaggeration. Daniel Jones was running all over us early on in the game. The tight ends were getting a lot of success. 
And that was even before what you're about to get to when they really started to get the run game going as well and open up holes in the in the defensive line. But they were moving the ball at will. It was frightening. But as soon as that happened, the momentum really, I think, shifted in this in the game. I agree. It definitely shifted for the latter part of the half because we got a TD by Gerard Evans, uh, a rush on a zone read play, and it was on a fourth down call by Fuente to go for it. And it was a little gutsy at the time in the game because a field goal would have given us a 17-7 lead. But he went for it on fourth, and it was a 12-play, 66-yard drive, and Evans pounded it pounded it in. We were up 21-7. to And we had another possession right before the half. And this was another thing that happened in this game again and again. There was a lot of could-have-been plays, and this was one of them. We had a screen pass late in the first half that hit Jonathan Jonathan McLaughlin, our offensive lineman in the back, but it was intended for Marshawn Williams. And there was no one in front of Marshawn Williams for like 30 yards. He would have taken if, that to the house. There was nobody. I, I watched the game again because I, I wasn't, I didn't get to watch the game. I was watching on my iPad at the brewery. And I remember watching it on my iPad and I couldn't see it really well, but I didn't think anybody was there. Yeah. I popped it on the big screen yesterday he had 30 yards ahead of him that he could have, uh, you know, taken taken some good yardage, if not to the house. Right, and we could have added a score before the half, but beat as it made, and it ended up 21 to seven at the half. And in the third quarter is when Duke started to really, really gash us with their running game, and that became the story of the day. Jones, Wilson, whoever it may be, they were just moving the ball down the field, and Jones ran in a touchdown on a on his own read play, and that was made it 21 to 14. On our next drive, we actually had some decent plays and even scored a touchdown to Isaiah Ford when she was standing there wide open in the end zone, but the play was called back due to a penalty on Wyatt Teller for being an offensive lineman downfield, which I don't think you're allowed to be, what, three yards past the line of scrimmage, and he might have been three and a half. It, was, it seemed... Yeah, that's right. It was awful. Yeah, three yards uh, on passing passing plays, and... I've gone back and I was thinking about it because I've been running all those stats. The number of critical penalties, and I love Wyatt Teller. I think he's a gutsy player. But in this game, the number of games that he's had this year where he's had really critical time and just unfortunate penalties for us has been brutal. And this one was really, really shitty. It's It sucked for him because he was so close to being not a penalty, and you know he took that personally. And it's it's tough for the offensive lineman with so much run-pass option. And honestly, that never gets called. With with how with where he was on the field and his impact on the play, Like it so rarely gets called. To see it called and negate a touchdown in what could have been a – a critical score for us and, and could have resulted in us losing the game was unfortunate. But we ended up with a field goal, took a 10-point lead into the fourth, and later in the fourth quarter, Evans narrowly missed throwing an interception of Brown Borders, which would have been a pick six. It, talking about what could have been. Uh, Duke had some of their own plays like that, but luckily we were able to punt the ball, although the punt was absolutely terrible by Ludwig, and it led to a... T- uh, a TD by Jones after a pass interference call got them close. So it was 24-21 with seven minutes and 10 seconds left. And I don't know about you, but that with the way Duke was moving the ball, I was terrified we were going to lose this game after controlling it from that blocked field goal. That moment is going to come full circle when we do kind of our positives and negatives on this game because I was in the same mentality of you. My mind is trained in the last five years of, or four years of Virginia Tech football, five years. And I thought it was over. I I just, I always just snap back to what has been in the past four overtimes against Duke, that kind of, it just, I was so worried. And I know that, you know, well, in any case, we'll, we'll get to the thoughts on that. So they, they score the touchdown and make it 24, 21. And on the next drive, Evans misses Rogers on one of those pop passes we'd done a few times. It was a little too long, and we had to punt. And Duke comes back with the ball, and Terrell Edmonds makes a great play in, uh, in pursuit of Sean Wilson. Unfortunately, his helmet connects with Wilson's helmet. Lights out for Wilson. Ball comes loose. I think Mook recovered it. We instantly recovered the ball. And, you know, 
it was a great momentum swinging play in theory, and now we can have a chance to run out the clock in Duke territory. But they called targeting on Terrell Edmonds, and uh, just like whenever that happens in just about any college football game these days, there was a lot of people upset with the call. I think it was probably right by the letter of the law. Um, it's just really annoying. I think it was – people may not like me for this, but I've I've seen people on each side of it. I think it was called correctly. The problem is, and where I think there's a lot of validity, is earlier in the game it wasn't called on Singleton when he hit uh, Cunningham on that nasty blow that he gave him to the, to the head that if you were going to call the Terrell – then I think you should have called that other hit. So for me, it came down to consistency. I think it was called correctly, but I think the other one was called incorrectly. Well, if anything, with the Cunningham play, I didn't know if it was targeting, but it was definitely unnecessary roughness, it seemed like, or unsportsmanlike conduct or some kind of penalty that that we could have gotten. But Duke maintained possession of the football because of the targeting call, and they were at about midfield. And to Virginia Tech's credit, they're the defense who had a tough day. They sacked uh, Jones on the very next play. We're able to get Duke to punt. And we got the ball with four minutes and six seconds left. And we got three consecutive first downs, including a nice run by Trayvon McMillan. And the last first down was an Evans rush and the O-line push. And that, that play where he's being pushed by the O-line and we get the last first down that we need to run out the clock <laughs> – like in the words of Brett Bielema, that was borderline erotic. <laughs> it was incredible, and that was that wasn't the only time that there was there was a few good pushes by the offensive line on getting Evans some additional yardage by scooting him up a little bit. So hat tip to the O line on that. Yep. So we were able to run out the clock, and it, the game ended twenty four twenty one, and it was definitely a could have been game in terms of. We could have put a lot more points on the board. We could have put more yards on the board. And if we had hit some of our assignments, we you know, we would have been able to beat them more handily. But the fact that we escaped with the win, with the, with the game plan that Cutcliffe brought to the table, I mean, I just feel fortunate, honestly. I think we have to. It, you know, it's interesting right before we go into to the details, and I think this you know belongs here versus the summary, I was thinking about the game, and afterwards, we won, and I felt terrible for about, I don't know how you did, for about a 36-hour period of time, where I was i was thinking, man, this is a team that you know had so many injuries, they shouldn't have been able to keep up with Virginia Tech, what was going on with our team? And then I got to thinking about something that I've mentioned on the podcast about a billion times, which is, I want to see what this team is made of when things are not going well, when you're not getting that pass or, you know, the ball bounces off McLaughlin's head and you don't, you don't get the extra 35 yards when things start going the wrong way. When, when Gerard Evans doesn't throw a touchdown pass in the whole game, except for the one that was pulled back on, on a penalty. And then I got to thinking they did it. I mean, this, this is one of those games where, Things didn't go as well. We didn't play as well. You know, we had problems on defense getting contained. We had problems on defense and coverage in the secondary. And they still managed to pull it out. And during one of the press conferences, I think it might have been Gerard Evans, one of the players, when I was listening to it, it kind of clicked for me. And they said, sometimes you just have an off week. But, you know, the good and the great teams find a way to win those when it's not going that well. And for me... It was funny because then I thought, well, hell, I just watched the game that I've been asking for all year, which is to see what happens when things don't go well, and they pulled it off. They really did, and in, in reality, they did it against Pitt too, but if you're, if you're talking about a game where you're, you're frustrated the whole time because you should be beating them by more, I suppose, this was that game. It was Louisville against UVA, you know, and, and the great team, and that was even even wider margin of talent disparity and who should have won, and the good and great teams, they find a way to just get it done. And the response in the fourth quarter, because our defense, they, uh, there was one point where Duke was within field goal range, and our defense got sacks on two out of three plays and knocked them back out of field goal range. And then right after the targeting call doesn't go our way, 
and you are thinking, you know, this is this is going to be a back-breaking call, you know, sack on the very next play. I mean, that that response was huge. It was the absolute key to the game. And before I we kind of give some of the negatives which revolve around the defense and some of the execution on offense, I have to give credit to Daniel Jones. I mean, this freshman quarterback, he played really well against Louisville. He played really well against Georgia Tech. And I am upset that we have to go up against this guy now for three years, potentially. Yeah, he's frightening. He he made good decisions with the ball. He put it in the right place. He knew times that he had to put it on his shoulders and run it. He played a lot like Virginia Tech has played this year and a lot like Gerard Evans, who has... Yeah, it may not be at you know the ACC caliber football level, but Gerard Evans a lot of times knows when he just needs to put it on his shoulders and run the ball, and he did that very very well. And Ida, you know, gained yards that were critical to them staying in this game. So big hat tip to him. I'm equally as frustrated that we have to go up against him for three more years and. You know, he would have one less year of experience if Cirque didn't get hurt. So I kind of wish that had, you know, he was still he was still out there almost. So let's transition into the defense then. And I'm going to start just that the run D for Virginia Tech was just terrible. 227 yards given up. This is one week after giving up 180 uh, against Pitt. And, you know, some you explain the, the Pitt game away because you're going up against James Conner. But this was a Duke team missing their starting running back and using a freshman quarterback. But just like our Achilles heel, it's this quarterback running this run pass option with the potential for the QB to move the ball with his feet. And it killed us. It ki- I saw the same plays that Thomas Sirk used last year with, with Daniel Jones, just as effectively with a better defense, more experienced defense than we had last year. And, Jones and the guys were running it to perfection. It, it was really, really frustrating. They out first downed us in this game. And it was mixed up. So it started, I think it started with the secondary having some problems, which opened up the run game because the passes to the tight ends, which, you know, you have three fairly capable tight ends for Duke. And Daniel Jones made some great passes to him, to those guys and started to stretch out, stretch out the defense. So then you transition from there into Daniel Jones putting it on his shoulders and then showing that he has some mobility on the outside, even some mobility on the inside on some of his plays. That further stretches it out. And then you had some of the swing passes, which we did defend the swing passes exceptionally well, I think, um, for the most part. There was a couple that got away from us, um, two in mind that I, I can remember. And we were all over the place, and then they started getting the run game going. So it was – they transitioned through the best way to beat up a Bud Foster defense exceptionally well, and that's a hat tip to Cutcliffe. He knew how he wanted to progress through the game, and it did go very well for them, but our defense really struggled, and the defensive end play was abysmal at best. There wasn't – how many I, we lost contain on so many runs? It was getting so frustrating to watch, and then you lose contain. So then, now the defensive ends are in their own head, and then it opens up a couple in the middle with with bad bad ski. You know, people not playing their assignment. It's just it was tough to watch sometimes. It was, and it wasn't just the young guys or you know one guy on the def- at the defensive end position. It was. A Canham, it was Mahota, it was Dooley, it was Trevon, it was all of them. All of them made big mistakes. And you need to read French's piece on the key play about it because he, he did a really good job of summing it up. And um, I it makes you nervous going into Georgia Tech. Now, it's not the same type of offense. It's the same from the perspective of you're going to have a quarterback doing option plays. But the assignments are different in, in option football. But it doesn't make you feel good. And thank God for the Edmonds brothers, because without them, there are top two tacklers in this game. Without them, no chance we win. No, not even close. We wouldn't even come anywhere close. And, you know, hat tip to to those two. After one brother goes out, the next one gets the sack on the next play. 
That's what we call a sack lunch. Nom, 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 nom. And that's going to be the best sound segment <laughs> ever because So you got the you got the soundboard up and running over there. We have the soundboard. Don't worry. I know people would get frightened. I don't I'm not a big soundboard guy, but we'll bring it out only at the appropriate times. Um, and it's probably not going to be every episode, but when we find something that's useful, then we'll, we'll go with it. And the sack lunch is, is especially appropriate right there. Let's switch over to the offense and I'll start with, I guess let's start with the negative there so we can end on a positive note. And there was just poor blocking on a lot of offensive plays. Now we started off well, and something that we had mentioned running inside and how bad it had been, but early in this game, we're getting a lot of nice inside zone runs, and that's something that I've been wanting to see more more of this entire season. And usually we don't have too much of a problem getting outside, but in this game, it was like going back to the Liberty game with guys just missing blocks and missing assignments and just poor effort. Not even Sometimes the guys would be in the right position and make the play, and then they just give a terrible effort. And I, I didn't really know what that was with, with regard to blocking. And we just had a really hard time getting outside. Credit to Humphrey and uh, Giles Harris, the two linebackers for Duke, because yeah. they were getting sideline to sideline and shedding blocks really well. And I don't know. I I don't sometimes I, I don't know how, how much credit I should be giving to Cutcliffe and Jones and these linebackers, and how much I should be knocking our defense. But when you see blatant missed assignments like like our defensive ends. Clearly, you have to assess some blame. With regard to the offense, some of these defensive players were making really, really nice plays. Did you have any other negatives besides kind of some of the execution in terms of the blocking stuff? I thought it was more interesting that we went so run-heavy in the first half. It was extremely run-heavy. It almost looked like Fuente wanted to choose this game as the time that, hey, I'm I'm a run-first kind of guy. This is the game that we're going to do it because the amount of passing that happened here and a lot of it was probably due to great coverage on Isaiah Ford. I think that happened almost throughout the whole game, but I I thought that we had kind of gotten or moved past this concept where we need to get back to, to the run because it has to happen. That's the scheme that I want to run instead of just playing to our strengths, which is generally in the past game. And we, it was, it was a really run heavy game in the first half. It was. And, you know, I thought that the teams kind of mirrored each other in terms of their offensive game plans. There was so much quarterback running from both sides and we had more passing yards than them, but not a whole lot. They had a little bit more rushing yards from the QB, but Evans finished with 83 yards and, you know, another 192 passing. It wasn't his most efficient day. You know, he was 15 for 27 uh, just the one TD on a rush, uh, but he had a lot of key pickups in the running game, like at key moments when we needed some yards. And in particular, there were two different fourth down plays. Um, you know, we got it done, and that was the difference, really. And Evans, like I said, not his cleanest or best performance, but a, a solid performance that got us the win. Because other than McMillan had a positive day. And some, and that's more like you said. They were focusing on the run earlier in the game, and and wanted to give him some work against the susceptibility they saw. Uh, but Evans was the key yet again, and the receivers, Bucky made an amazing catch to lead to that first touchdown. Yeah, the touchdown but by McMillan wouldn't. That, they that weren't wouldn't the happen. headline. Yeah, right. They weren't the headline in this game. It, it was it was uh, the special teams play and some key pickups by Evans is really what got this win. But this was a weird game for him. There, things did not look right, and it was hard to put your finger on it. And I was going back through the stats, but you know, on leading into this game, he was about almost sixty percent completion beyond the line of scrimmage. In this game, he was forty-eight. He targeted receivers almost two yards shorter than he has on average for the whole season during this game. One for six on passes outside the pocket, and he was almost at sixty percent on scrambling plays, or at least designed, um, you know, outs. And it just everything looked a little funky in the actual pass game that we ended up taking. And maybe it had something to do with the injury from the the week prior, 
and he's still a little tender on it, but he seemed to run the ball pretty well. So it it didn't look great, and everybody's allowed to have a bad week outside of, you know, maybe Lamar. I think he I don't think he's had a bad week. And I'm hoping it turns around against, you know, what we're about to get into, which is a really, really shaky Georgia Tech defense. Yeah, I'm hoping he can get on track as well. And I think we should probably take a beer break before we do that. This is a weird week, uh, just with the Duke game and the fact that we're going up against this triple option. So I felt it appropriate to have kind of a unique beer. So I'm drinking the Steam Whistle, which is a Canadian beer. It's a Pilsner from Toronto. And my sister was recently up in Niagara Falls and then went up into Canada. And they brought me back this beer. And it's one of Toronto's most popular beers. It's it's a classic Golden Pilsner. And it is really tasty. They pride themselves on only having four ingredients, which is water, malted barley, hops, and yeast. And there's nothing else in it. And if I could associate it with any American beer, it's basically a Budweiser. That's that's <laughs> what it tastes like I'm drinking. And I like Budweiser, so that's okay. Um, it's maybe a little bit cleaner than a Budweiser would be in terms of finish, but it's really good. I, I would recommend a steam whistle. It's one of their most popular beers and uh, up there. And my, my brother-in-law was saying you can find it at every bar and I'm drinking currently a pounder of it. 5% alcohol, the steam whistle. Robbie, what are you having? I went with the Piner throwback IPA from Oscar blues brewery, which is out of, I think it's Brevard, North Carolina. I don't think we've had it on. Maybe you've had it, but we I haven't. I don't think we've had the it. And look at the way it's spelled. It's it's the Pinner, correct? P I N N E R. Yes, you are one hundred percent right. <laughs> the Piner would be like that beer that you had on that had the uh, the pine taste to it. So. The, the spruce tips. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was close yes. on that one, and I'm reading this halfway out of the side of my eye. So that's uh, that's part of it. The Overall, I actually think it's a pretty good beer. It's uh, a little bit lighter, so it's not extra hoppy, but it doesn't have the um, the dreaded, or at least my dreaded, really harsh malty backbone. It's kind of a light, light IPA, and I don't I don't drink that much. Everybody knows, you know, the Dale's Pale Ale from Oscar Blues, and it's I would say it's. Very similar to that beer with a more hoppy kind of front end to it. And I like Dale's, but it's not great. I'm not going to drink it every single day of the week. And minus a little bit of the malt, given that's just kind of a straight pale ale. It's good beer, North Carolina, so a little bit closer. At least it's touching uh, Virginia. So trying to bring some stuff closer to home when I'm going through the, the beer store rushing after work. Yeah, this is now the third Oscar Blues. Like you said, the Dales. I had the straight-up IPA from Oscar Blues. And we also had the Jade from Foothills, North Carolina, and the Duck Rabbit from maybe Farm something, North Carolina. So we've done better on the North Carolina beers. All right, so we're playing Georgia Tech this week. Triple option. It's coming to Blacksburg. And they're coached by Paul Johnson. We should all know that by now. He's been there since 2008. He's got a 66 and 48 record, and he's 40 and 30 in the ACC. So 10 games above 500 in the ACC. They're five and four this year, and two and four in the ACC. Their wins include titans such as BC, Mercer, Vandy, Georgia Southern, and Duke. Anyone decent they face, they've lost to. And Virginia Tech has actually won five of six against Georgia Tech. And if you'll remember, two years ago, the 2014 game, we had every opportunity to win that one too, and it really should be six in a row. But I think they converted a fourth down in 19 or something, and they ended up winning. Um, but regardless, we've played Georgia Tech really well over the last you know, six or seven years. And this year... Like last year, they're not bringing a very typical team to Blacksburg. They're they're struggling on defense. Their offense is better than last year. Now, if you remember last year, Georgia Tech went three and nine. They missed a bowl game for the first time in forever, and uh, 
This year, Justin Thomas is back yet again. He will not leave for whatever reason. But <laughs> He'll be there forever. He's good. He's got the offense going a little bit more than last year. They've been a solid group, but it's still nothing I would think to fear. And in rushing yards per game, they're putting up 257 yards per game. And the average down to the decimal point is actually the lowest of any year in Paul Johnson's tenure. Aren't they usually up around like 350 yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll say this. In 2014, when they won, they ended up – so after that game they beat us, they ended up going on a tear and went to the Orange Bowl and then beat Mississippi State. So we were kind of their springboard to having an incredible year in 2014. They were averaging 342 yards on the ground that year. I missed it by so, eight. So, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> 85 yards more than they're averaging this year. They are passing for 143 yards per game, which is the most ever – under Paul Johnson's tenure at Georgia Tech. So it's a little bit different of a Georgia Tech team than we've seen, and probably some of that is the fact that they have a senior quarterback. He's completing passes at a higher rate than he normally does. Now, for Justin Thomas, 55%, which is about what he's at, is one of the best percentages he's ever had. Uh, Last year, I think he was at like 41% for the season. But they have a couple of good receivers, and Clinton Lynch, one of their A-backs, has been a huge threat in the passing game, and it's led to this this passing average, which, like I said, is right around 144 yards per game, which is something that is above their normal output. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think Justin Thomas he's been he's been productive on the ground, but it looks as though the run game has really opened up the pass for him this year, and the experience that you alluded to against Duke, he had a huge day. With almost 459 yards. Granted, that, you know, things last week didn't go nearly as well and four TDs. So he's playing, I would say, pretty well this year and playing like a veteran that should be in a Paul Johnson uh, offense. Well, his efficiency metrics are way up. He's 161.4 quarterback rating and an 80.4 QBR, both of which are higher than Gerard Evans right now. And now he doesn't he gets to pick his spots a lot more cuz they run the ball so much. And QBR is also a measure of how well you run the ball as a quarterback. And he's got 560 yards rushing on a 5-yard per carry average and ad- an additional 5 touchdowns. But the one interception combined with his yards per attempt average, he's playing efficient football at the quarterback position. If you're going to run a triple option offense with the occasional you know, pass to keep people honest, he's doing it really well. And yes, he could be completing more of his passes, but that's not really required to have this offense run successfully uh, because it catches defense so off guard. Usually these passes go a really long way, and you can see that in the averages of their wide receivers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, let's I'll probably finish it off with the wide receivers have been have definitely been good. The the B back and the A back for them in the triple option scheme. Diedrich Mills has been exceptional, especially with I guess it, it's been a lot of kind of short yardage stuff that's led to. But he has 10 touchdowns on the year, 114 carries, 578 yards. Then you have Marcus Marshall, who has another 299 on the ground on 52 attempts and a, a TD, TD. I think the real question is, if Marcus Marshall will be out again this week, who's going to be in there kind of spelling Dedrick Mills? Because they don't want to keep those guys on the field all the time. They do like to rotate them a little bit, give them a couple breathers. So that B-back position with the injury, I think, is going to be a little bit questionable for them and seeing what they come out with. It sounds like... You know, it has to – Marcus Allen's going to end up having to take over, you know, some of the duties there for yeah, as confusing as this gets, Marcus Marshall. But there's a lot of moving pieces at some of that. And then you have the A-backs. Um, Ricky June and Clinton Lynch have been pretty pretty amazing. Clinton Lynch especially has been um, pretty good this year. He's been targeted a bunch on the in the past game, more screen passes, things like that. And he's been exceptionally productive. So 
it, this is it's a pretty dynamic duo back there. A couple injuries, a couple swap outs, a guy leaving the program. But generally, I think they have a solid core. Once again, like Paul Johnson's always going to make sure they do in, in those back positions um, and with Justin Thomas playing pretty well. Yeah, the health of the B-backs has been a little up in the air because I think even Mills missed some time. And just to clarify, so you've got your A-backs and your B-backs in this in this offense as well as your wide receivers. And and Dietrich Mills is a B-back. And the B-backs are generally the bigger backs, which are you know, run between the tackles and are supposed to fall forward for yards. And the A-backs are your pitch men, the guys who get, get around the edge on the corners. Um, and that's Clinton Lynch in this case. He's their lead A-back. And and Mills and Lynch are, are basically the one-two punch. And, and the fact that Mills has burst on the scene as a freshman, 5'10", 217, like you said, 10 touchdowns, a five-yard per carry average, uh, he has been so important for them. And without him, I really don't know where they'd be. Marshall would get some more work, and he's a good player. Uh, but Lynch, his yard per carry average is 10.6, which I couldn't believe. And then I looked at his receptions average, which is 32.4, and that's not a mistake, 32.4 yards per catch. He has 12 receptions on the year, and he has almost 400 yards, which makes no sense, and five TDs receiving. So Lynch, although he's an A-back and is required to run the ball, they've been using him out of the backfield and as a wide receiver, and he's been putting up numbers like crazy. Uh, The other A-back, Quay Searcy, he has 166 yards and, again, over five yards per carry. But really it comes down to Mills, Marshall, and Lynch. I think Mills and Marshall are both going to play. And then if you move to the wide receivers, that's where – you mentioned Ricky June, and you mentioned him as an A-back, but he has basically been their wide receiver. They And they use these guys in various roles. It's basically uh, but, interchangeable. The A-back and the wide receiver in many other offenses could be an interchangeable spot. You're looking for the, a relatively similar body type, a relatively similar type of athleticism, and they'll split out Ricky Drew. He's basically acting like <laughs> we call we called Bucky Hodges a tight end. He wasn't a tight end. He was a wide receiver. <laughs> Yeah, Ricky June is effectively a wide receiver. So he's got 21 receptions, over 350 yards, a 17.4 average and a touchdown. And then the other receiver who's who's played well for them is, uh, I think it's Brad Stewart, 14 receptions, 275 yards, almost a 20-yard average, but he doesn't have any touchdowns. But, the, you know, this is what happens when you have an option team. You have these wide receiver averages that are so out of whack because you lull the defense to sleep and then you pop these passes on them, and it can it can be devastating for the defense. And it's something I'm definitely concerned about, especially the fact that Terrell's going to miss the first half with the targeting. And we don't know the status of Stroman. It seems like he's going to play, but I would ex- expect his snaps to be somewhat limited because he's dealing with an ankle and they can be tricky. We don't – Fuente's been a little bit mum on that. Um, I- I'm nervous because this is probably the best passing team – We've seen since they've had Calvin Johnson at Georgia Tech. Yeah, I would agree with that. And their offensive line's coming off a pretty two pretty good weeks uh, and were pretty productive against Duke and UNC. So they're, they're playing pretty well on the offensive side of the ball. We're going to really have to step it up. We're going to have to protect the run. We're going to see, like I said, we have to be careful with um, – with Edmonds out for the first half because, you know, no matter what, you, you want him on the field. And I He's think an important to, player. Absolutely, especially in an offense like this, which is going to show us a lot of different looks. And I think what's also important for us is the secondary has to stay sharp. Just like you said, they're going to try and lull you to sleep with the run game and then go over the top. Right. And that's what has happened so far. If you watch a lot of the highlights of their games, they have these long passes that are happening because people have been seeing 10 run plays in a row and the secondary starts to kind of fall asleep or they creep up or they, you know, stop paying attention to coverage. And then all of a sudden they just go deep on you. And we need to be more mindful of that than other teams have been. Let's switch over to defense and this is a completely different story, and I don't want to spend too much time on their defense because it's not very good. You can look at their total D, their rush D, their pass D. It's all around the middle of the pack, scoring defense, 26 points per game. 
but their S&P rating is at 81. And if you look at some of their more like, explosive ratings, such as Havoc, their Havoc rate is 127th in the country. They don't create fumbles. They don't get tackles for loss. They, they don't create any Havoc. <laughs> That's why their rate is so bad. They're the second to last team in college football. They're 124th in sacks. They have eight sacks the entire year. So their defensive line play in general is not good at all. Patrick Gamble is really the only guy that deserves a mention. Um, I, I'll give, I guess I'll give Antonio Simmons. He has another ta- five tackles for loss, two and nine hurries. So those two guys, but like otherwise, it's a very vanilla defensive line. Um, I think their linebackers are slightly less terrible. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I have in rank of terribleness. This is in, this is probably going to backfire on next week's podcast, and we're going to be getting flame flame email. In in ranks of terribleness, I have their defensive as hot garbage. I have their linebackers and DBs tied, depending on the week, as bad and not hot hot garbage, not that extreme. But yeah, Patrick Gamble looks good. Corey Griffin leads the team in tackles. But he's got 12 more than the kind of second next guy. And, you know, Corey's got an interception on the year. But they're not, as you said, there's not a lot of havoc on this team. It's pretty plain vanilla. Make sure that we don't screw up and try not to, to make bad things happen. But the the defensive line is really bad, which I think is going to be extremely interesting tying into what we're seeing on the field what Virginia Tech wants to be versus what Virginia Tech is, which we want to be a run-first team under Fuente, but it hasn't been as productive. Yet now you're up against a defensive line that's really bad. I would I would suspect that we're going to come out looking a lot like the first half in Duke and trying to run the ball a lot in this game. I 100% agree with that. I think this is going to be one of those situations where Fuente is trying to workshop some things. If he, like you were saying, is that what he just wanted to do in Duke, where he just wanted to see if we could run the football finally and maybe, you know, get the guys in a rhythm in that respect and, and kind of treat it like, uh, you know, like I said, like you're workshopping it. Well, like, will this work? And this is a defense that's bad enough to try it. And I think Duke's linebackers probably surprised Fuente. I don't think that's going to happen with this team. I think that their best player is probably their strong safety, Griffin, like you mentioned. He is their top tackler. He's got 52 solo tackles on the year, which is that's quite a few and means that he's having to make quite a few tackles. Um, they've got a decent free safety, one decent corner, Lance Austin, with who has seven pass breakups and 29 solo tackles in his own right. So I would say their defensive backs are the strongest. So I would expect them to do some more of that inside zone. Try to try to mash the football a little bit in this game, especially early on, just like the Duke game. And hopefully the defense can stifle them as we're used to. Like I and let let's just move to that to that section of where we do our keys to the game well, because one more thing. I think the the sure, cor- the corollary to what happened against UNC when they played them which could be very important in this game, and I hope it is because then I might sound right and I'll probably end up sounding really wrong, is they focused a lot on on Switzer in that UNC game, and Bug Howard had a day of it. Those That matchup right there is very similar to what you would see if people concentrate too much on Ford, and that's happened this year, and then you open up things for Bucky Hodges. So I wouldn't be surprised... Either one, they're going to learn their lesson and they're going to, you know, be a little bit more mindful of not concentrating too much on one wide receiver. But if they make that same mistake again, Bucky Hodges could have himself a day. And that's what ended up happening when everybody was focused on Ryan Switzer. Bug Howard had a great game for UNC. So that's a really good point. And that's absolutely what happened against UNC. Georgia Tech gave up 636 yards to UNC and 9.1 yards per play. And as um, from the rumble seat, I think that's the Georgia Tech blog on SB Nation. They said it was one of the worst defensive performances in the history of the program. So, so, and that's what that's what they're coming off of. So maybe they're getting 
chewed out all this week and they're going to bring on a big defensive performance, but that's not easy to do on the road. So I like, I like that thought process. So maybe Bucky will have a big day. Maybe Cam will have a big day just because that attention will be drawn. They want to try to take someone away. Maybe they'll decide to take Bucky away and the other two guys will go off. But the fact of the matter is you cannot hold down our wide receivers because we have three really, really good ones. If we do not turn the football over, 28 points is a baseline. That That's what I'm thinking against this defense. And that might be a little cocky sounding, but it's just what George – I mean, they're giving up 26 points per game. We have a potent offense. They're probably playing the worst defense of the season right now. And they're on the road in Blacksburg. And the last time Virginia Tech had a full week to repair in Blacksburg, we beat ECO 54-17. to So I – and that's probably – the closest in terms of poor defensive play that we face this year would be the ECU defense. That's how, like, that's the closest defense to that would be Georgia Tech of all the defenses we faced. Yeah, my overall thought is we can't show up flat on offense. The fact is, you can say what you will about Georgia Tech on defense, but they put up yards, and in most games, you have to prepare for yards to correlate to. You know, touchdowns, field goals, whatever the case may be, scoring. So I'm not sure that coming off of the defensive performance that we just put out on the field that we – I hope it is. I really hope that I'm completely wrong and Bud Foster, you know, meets with the team and tells them everything they did wrong and we come out looking completely different. But there's injuries that we're trying to get through. There's a lot of struggles on that that defensive line right now. We're, we're, we're out a player for the first half of this game. I think Georgia Tech's going to put up some points for us. So this game fundamentally for me comes down to what's our offense going to do. So that is the number one coming into this. We cannot show up flat. We have to start a little faster than we have in some other games. And it, a lot of people have said we start slow. I think we start slow in the first five eight, 10 minutes of the game, but things really start to turn on in this game. I think we need to come out quick, fast and put points on the board. I think that's really the key for me is what we're able to do. What Gerard Evans is able to put together in this game, what we can do on the run game against a really bad defensive line and how we're able to execute on the field on that side of the ball is going to dictate yeah, whether we win and how much we win by. And because even though they have been passing the ball more, this is still a, an option team. If you get up a decent amount on an option team, it makes it really hard for them because they can't do what they like to do. Uh, and said differently, if they get up on you, you're screwed because they can <laughs> look at they can, yeah, Notre Dame and kill the clock. Notre yeah. Dame had six possessions last week. I don't know if you saw that stat. But they played Navy, and they got the ball six times. That doesn't even make sense in, in in any way, shape, or form, but it's factual. So the triple option can really slow things down for the opposing offense trying to come back. So that's that's even more reason why I think it depends on we need to get up, get up early, and make sure that we hold it. And in terms of our defense— Bud has probably done as good a job as any in defending the triple option. And we, we spent a lot of time talking up like their playmakers and stuff, but this is still a mediocre offense. It's, it's not, if you, sure, they run the ball well and they've, they've been passing better than they normally do, but they're 70th in total offense. Like <laughs> they're 44th in the S and P. This is a, a middling offense. And last year, I think Bud gave up 160. Three years ago, we gave up 129 on the ground. I mean, he has done a really good job stopping their run game, and they'll occasionally get a big play pass in the ball, and that'll probably happen. And they'll, you know, they'll have a maybe a big run here or there too. But the way he teaches his guys to defend this triple option, he does it as good as anyone. And I expect him to stifle them just as, like he normally would. I think a bigger key that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact is Nigel Williams going to play. He wasn't on the injury report last week, but he didn't play. Mm-hmm. And he is a 300 pounder on the inside, a defensive tackle for us that 
Against Georgia Tech, it would be really nice to have him. I think he knows how to play this defense really well being a senior. And if he plays, that might give you the ability to play Woody at defensive end a little bit. And now, now you're big across the line as opposed to being a little bit more little bit more light as we normally would be um, against a spread team. Yeah. So I think Nigel Williams is a big factor in, in playing for Tech in this game. I agree. And Fuente will have to become accustomed to, which I appreciate and I kind of like, and he'll be consistent about it, which makes me like it even more. He doesn't really talk about injuries that much. He alluded a little bit that Stroman, they got good news about that, and hence your comments early on about... We hope that the ankle is in good shape. And on Nigel Williams, all he said was he was ready to play. That's what he said. And he was he was medically, I infer to that comment, meaning he was medically ready to play. He was cleared by the medical staff to play, and he decided to hold himself out of that game, which I think is a good sign going into this Georgia Tech game that he just wanted another week to make sure that he's going to be productive for this for this team and not be a hindrance to the ability for them to do what they're trying to do each week. Agreed. So let's do a beer break before we give our picks. Robbie, what are you drinking? I have the uh, Pocahoptus. I think we have had this on here once before, so I'll apologize. But again, I was trying to find more local beers and there was a decent selection at the place I was at, but not a, not a great, great selection. It's from Ashland, Virginia. And we talked about it a little bit off air. It's pretty delicious. I went from kind of a lighter IPA before this, uh, which I called, uh, the pinner, which is, uh, or the piner and it's the pinner, which I really botched on that one. But Going from that to this is a little bit of a shock. It's got a lot more hop to it, but it's actually really, really good. It's pretty well balanced, has a little bit more malt to it than the beer that I just had. Definitely a little hoppier, and but it's not it's not over the top. You could you could probably have a couple of these, probably not more than that, and I like it a lot. It's it tastes pretty good. I really like the Pocahontas. I had it last year, and and we did mention off air that, you know, due to the increase in our listenership, it really doesn't matter if we had it last year because I'm not too, sure too many people heard about it. But the Pocahontas by what is it? Center of the Universe Brewing Company. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that it's Center of the Universe Brewing Company, which is a pretty which is a pretty bold name, and I kind of appreciate it. Yeah, it's right outside of Richmond, I guess, in Ashland, and uh, that Pocahontas is great. I'm having. The Crisp by Six Point Brewery uh, from Brooklyn, New York. And this is another reference to uh, – I mentioned my sister – my younger sister brought me back the steam whistle from Canada. Well, my older sister was making fun of me because I used the term crisp too much when describing the beers. I have apparently said it. <laughs> I mean we, we are not – It's very crisp. You know, <laughs> I like it. We're not, we're not the most eloquent when it comes to our beer descriptions and she was – Apparently uh, annoyed that I was using the term crisp to describe the beers too much. But that's why I decided to choose the crisp for this one. And it is crisp. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least it's not the name. (laughs) It's 5.4% alcohol, but it really is a good beer. And you were saying the transition from, you know, maybe a a pale ale to an IPA with the the pinner to, to the Pocahontas. The transition from the steam whistle to this is very smooth, and this has just a little bit more flavor than the steam whistle, and I really, really like it. I would, I would recommend the crisp to anyone who likes a, uh, maybe a, a lighter lager. It's, it's very, very good. I've got these lines here, and you know, the college football playoff rankings came out just before Robbie and I came on the air, and it turns out. VT fell in the favor of the voters this week, and it hasn't happened too often. I guess I shouldn't say voters, but the committee. And VT moved up to number 14 in the college football playoff rankings, which I was blown away by. I thought that was about three or four spots higher than I ever thought we had a chance to be. Not that it matters because a lot will change and we have a lot more games left. And and in reality, it's 
it's a very outside chance a playoff ranking means anything for us. Well, I think it's important only, and there's been so many discussions and I'll call them arguments on message boards or Twitter or whatever you want to follow for Virginia Tech football about what a ranking actually means. For me, what it comes down to is perception, right? And it's whether people are noticing if you're playing good football or not. And it's why there's those teams that are out in the Pac-12 and Washington wasn't getting much recognition. And then this year they're playing lights out and destroying everybody. It's about whether people are going to pay attention to you while you're on the field. So there's an importance in it. Not because I think that we're ever going to make the playoff this year or anything along those lines, but are people going to watch your games and expect things to be good? And are people going to recognize whether Gerard Evans is having an outstanding year, which he is, outside of running stats on ESPN? So the 14 was a little bit higher, but the committee did also, and we were rushing to kind of look things up right beforehand because you know it came out right before the podcast. The committee came out, and I think a number of times they said margin of victory does not matter. And that was one of the things that they kept re- – the committee always has these things that they keep reiterating every year. And it's you know controlling the game last year or top 25 wins. Or this year, the early part, it was wins over teams that um, have, have won you know more games than they've lost. And now they're touting this line of the margin of victory does not matter, which – effectively means that that Duke game just counts as a W. It doesn't count as a a close game. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it because there's been so many close games and you talked about the Louisville UVA game. It's I think that is why it's important. And I also think that what fed into our ranking is they didn't look at the Duke game and say, hey, they just squeezed by Duke. They looked at it as just another W. Yeah, but saying that margin of victory doesn't matter when you're dealing with human beings and eye tests, because by the definition of eye test and seeing Alabama and Washington wipe the floor with everyone, you can't say margin of victory doesn't matter. But we ended up at 14. I'm not sure why, and it's fine because there's there's probably a dozen 7-2 teams, and you can make a case for any of them being ranked ahead of any of the other ones, and we so happen to fall kind of you know, in the middle of that pack. So I'll take it. GT at Virginia Tech, we are a 14-point favorite. I like Virginia Tech to cover those 14 points. I think that Bud will do a good enough job to to stifle Georgia Tech to maybe two touchdowns, maybe two touchdowns and a field goal. And I think we're going to get 30 to 35 points, and we're going to cover that 14 points. What do you think? I am going to go with, and this has been tough because I almost went perfect one week, and then the next week I almost didn't get one single one right. (laughs) So I think this week I'm going to go with Georgia Tech. I think they squeak right inside that line uh, that you, you mentioned, and I don't think that they're going to win this game whatsoever, but I think they might just cover by a point or two. Okay. We're going to call the Thursday game UNC at Duke next. And UNC moved up to number 17 in the college football playoff rankings. And if you've been following the ranking of number 17 this year, it has been the, it's been a the sign of death. I mean, it, I think at one point, seven straight weeks, the number 17 team lost in the AP poll. Including Virginia Tech. Including Virginia Tech. And this past week, the number 17 team in the AP poll, Western Michigan, didn't lose. But when the first college football playoff rankings came out, the number 17 team did. So the streak stayed alive. And now UNC is number 17, and they're going on the road to Durham. We know how tough that is. They're 10.5-point favorites. I'm taking Duke. I'm going to go UNC. Probably regret this. I can see the angle for the Duke bounce back after, you know, they got to get a, I imagine they have to get an ACC win here at some point, but Mitch Trubisky seems to be running on, on pretty good cylinders at this point. So I think they'll, I think they'll do it. The next game is wake at 
Louisville. Louisville has moved to number six in the college football playoff rankings, and they are 35-point favorites over my Demon Deacons. Can't do it. I'm taking, I'm taking Wake. You're always taking Wake. Of course. <sighs> I got to take – it's so hard because Louisville's playing – they're playing – Although, albeit, I think, unsuccessfully, it's not going to end up happening for the playoff spot. I'm going to go Louisville. I probably shouldn't. I keep keep doing this. I keep taking the big lines, and I do it in the wrong weeks. So that probably means it's going to be a five-point game. Next game is Boston College at Florida State. Florida State is the number 18 team, according to the committee, and they are 21-point favorites at home against Boston College. I like Florida State to cover those 21 points. I took Boston College last week, and that went pretty well. So <laughs> I think I I may have missed the line by almost 25 points. I think it all ended up being or something along those lines, but it was a lot. I guess I'm going to have to go Florida State on this one. I got burnt really hard by Steve Adazio. Going, I'm going Florida State as well. All right, I got Miami at UVA next. Miami's 10-point favorites. UVA has been playing significantly better. Miami, I can't make heads or tails of them. They they play like crap, and they go out and beat Pitt on a line. I knew stunk last week, and I should have picked Miami because of it. But I'm going to take UVA against 10 points. I think they're going to keep it close against Miami because they're you know, at the huge home field advantage that is Scott Stadium. That is a huge advantage. <laughs> how how did they keep up with with Louisville that well is astounding to me. I think the schedule for Mendenhall has been tough because he's going to end up having probably what four out of five really tough games out of his last five. I think four of them will be pretty decent teams. So even if he's kind of riding the ship and starting to get his thing in, you know, his his scheme in place or his attitude in place, it's not going to show up on the field. So I'm going to go UVA, especially, you know, Miami coming off, you know, a, a good win. I got to go UVA here. I think Mendenhall is starting to make some changes. I don't know how long it's going to take. Could be five years. Hopefully it's five years, but... I I just don't think you're seeing it on the field based on the opponents that they're facing. I think he's already made some pretty decent improvements over just the last few weeks of the season, but it hasn't been showing up in the win column. The last, oh, I got two more games and the next one's Pitt at Clemson. Clemson is number two. They stay at number two and they're 21 point favorites against Pitt. And Pitt going to Death Valley, that that's not good for them, especially coming off the Miami loss and coming off the loss to us. I'm going to go with Pitt to cover the 21 points, but I don't feel good about them winning, especially with what Clemson just did to Syracuse last week. Yeah, I couldn't believe that what they beat Syracuse by. Because well, I saw a pretty good Syracuse team when they played us. But anyway, I feel like I have to take Pitt as well. I I can't imagine that this is going to keep up. I feel like Pitt is a decent team, a pretty good team, and can cover something like a spread that that's that wide. And Clemson right now, they're they're bound to have another close game than going into the finish line here. I'm going I'm going the same way. Um, I got. One last game, and it's NC State at Syracuse. We're just going to pick only ACC games because none of the top 25 games are super interesting. But NC State going to the Carrier Dome. I couldn't find a line on this. I'm not sure if you found one, but I'm assuming it's just a pick em. But for the sake of the podcast, we're going to pick it as a pick em. Both the teams have the same record, and NC State's on the road. I Like I said last week, I can't make heads or tails in NC State. Cues looked awful against Clemson. Flip a coin, I'm taking Cues at home. Two of us, we're taking Cues at home. They're coming off of, haven't they won a couple in a row? Or they've had, you know, they, they're starting to, 
show their their defense is certainly not but the Well before Clemson they were looking a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. So but their their offense is still really productive and it should be a pick 'em. I, I couldn't I couldn't make heads or tails of this game. I would go Syracuse at home in that stupid carrier dome without air conditioning. Okay. Well that is it for the picks and it for the podcast as always, thank you so much for listening. We went a little bit longer than we normally do. But, uh, you know, when you're going up against Georgia Tech, you got to give it its just due. This would be a really big win for us in so many ways. We we only have two more ACC games in this season, Georgia Tech and UVA. And, of course, the game on the road at Notre Dame. But that's not a conference game. If we want to get to Orlando now uh, and play Clemson for a shot at who knows what, we got to win those conference games. And I would love to to win out and also win that Notre Dame game too. But this this Georgia Tech win would be huge because it would leave one more conference game at home against a team we've beaten 12 years in a row. And I'd start to feel real good about winning the Coastal. So let's get this win. It's a very winnable game. I think the matchup is really good in terms of playing a weaker defense than offense for us. And uh, let's just hope Tech can pull it out. Couldn't agree more. I think we can do it this week. I really, really hope that we can do it this week. And this would be a big game. And then you really don't have much left on the on the slate, regardless of what happens at Notre Dame, because all we're focused on is getting to Orlando. Okay, you can hit us on Twitter. It's at 2DVT, gmail, 2DVT at gmail.com, and subscribe in iTunes. And leave us a review if you'd like. That would be great. Until next week when we're previewing Notre Dame. And we may be, we will be on site next week for another in-person recording. And that's something that uh, I guess we should announce at this point. We're going to be at Downtown Crown in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Um, It's a beer and wine store. And we'll be there on Sunday to preview the Notre Dame game. And we'll tweet out some more details and stuff like that as the week goes on. But me and Robbie will get the privilege of recording together again, which is always fun. And uh, the proprietor of that establishment will probably come on and talk some beer with us and some football with us as well. So we're looking forward to it. That'll be this Sunday when we're previewing Notre Dame. Till then, go Hokies. Go Hokies.